Write down what you have seen, both the things that are now happening and the things that will happen. Good morning, Abundant Life Church. Man, what a summer we've had together. I've been really enjoying walking through this series uh, in Revelation, taking a look at these seven churches and, and recognizing that God is the one who's absolutely in control. Now, don't worry, I'm not going to preach via video this morning, uh, but I did want the opportunity to introduce our speaker this morning. You know, our church is led by a team of elders, that they're men and women that God has called. He's placed them in into a team that oversees, cares for, and guides our church. And I'm so grateful and so appreciative of that team and the team that I get to be a part of uh, that works and serves in that capacity. And today, you're going to hear from one of our elders. And so I want you, would you put your hands together and would you welcome Nick Kirkwood as he comes to share God's Word with us today. All right. Good morning, Happy Valley Campus. I am excited to be here and talking with all of you today. Before we get going too far, I wanted to take a quick second just to pray as a congregation for what's going on over in Maui. And so if we can just take a quick moment to, as a body, stand as a group of believers and just pray for the families that are involved. Father God, we just, we love you. We know that you are all sovereign and all powerful. And God, we pray that you would just take care of the people that are impacted in Hawaii, Lord God, that the island of Maui, you would be there with the families, the friends, the people that are impacted. And we just ask for your peace that surpasses understanding that they would, that you would be a covering for the people impacted. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. I came up with three questions that I think most of you are asking yourselves right now. The first one is, who is this guy? So Gareth did a good job of introducing me. My name is Nick Kirkwood. I, am, I have the privilege of serving as one of the elders here for the church, but I've not had the chance to speak with any of you uh, from this capacity before. So I'm uh, excited to do so, but that's who I am. The other two questions are things that I get asked every single day. So the first one is, how tall is this guy? If you guessed six foot eight, then you're the winner. There you go. So I'm six foot eight is how tall I am. The second question is one that precedes that almost every single time, and it is, did you play basketball? Yes. So I did play basketball. I played for LaSalle High School here close by, and then uh, ended up going on to play for the University of Portland. Now, University of Portland is a smaller school, so many of you may or may not be familiar with, with them, but they are a Division I school. And so with them being D1, we played some of the best teams in the country. So we played against uh, Oregon State that year. We played against Gonzaga, who did well in the March Madness tournament. We were also the home opener for the Duke Blue Devils, who that year were the defending men's national champions. So we got to go over to North Carolina and play them. Uh, we also played the University of Oregon. Now, playing the University of Oregon was interesting because at the time they were ranked sixth in the country. And so it was one of those games that it was extremely exciting from start to finish. And whether you were a fan of either team it was just one of those games that you would have enjoyed to watch. Score change or lead change back and forth the whole way. Gets down to the end of the game. We're down two points with about six seconds to go, and we've got the ball. 
the ball goes out to uh, one of our guards who, in a true movie finish moment, gets a shot right at the top of the key for three, okay? He literally comes off, and it's one of those dream moments as a kid, right? You, he, the ball leaves his fingertips, and second, I mean, milliseconds after it leaves his fingertips, the buzzer goes off. So the ball's good, but it all depends on this shot. It all depends on what happens here. So we're all waiting as, you know, time slows down, and we're watching this ball slowly arc through the air, and minutes go by, right, just waiting for it to drop, and it hits the back of the rim. Shoots upward up above the backboard, but it's not over yet. Drops back down right through the center of the hoop. So, student section is rushing the court, and we knocked off the number six ranked team in the country, and it was all exciting, and, and that was that. So, I maybe painted a picture right there that is a little bit misleading. Every single fact that I just gave you is, is that. It's a fact. Um, but there's some other details that I want to fill in here that I think is going to quickly change your perception of maybe how good of a basketball player I was or even how good my team was. So that win against the University of Oregon was one of six wins that we would get the entire season. We went 6-23. and 23. We were the worst team in the West Coast Conference. Finished dead last. <laughs> we, uh, most of our games, we lost by about 40 points. And that was kind of the norm. If you're familiar with the West Coast Conference, then you'll know that there's really only two schools, I mean, that, that you're going to come up with, University of Portland and Gonzaga. If you know another team in the West Coast Conference, you're either a diehard sports fan or you went to one of the other schools. It's not exactly a powerhouse conference. It's probably one of the worst conferences out there. Well, I want to say I walked onto the team, and at that time, so I was, I'm six foot eight, I was six foot eight then as well, but I was about 185, 190 pounds. So I was a little guy when it came to the position because I grew up playing center. And so that's all I knew how to play. So I played it at a D1 level. And uh, this photo here pretty much summarizes what it was like for me to try to play center at a D1 school. Everybody had at least four to six inches on me, and they all had about 100 pounds on me as well. So I got completely manhandled trying to play that position. Now, I also recognize this is a photo of uh, Michael Jordan in the movie Space Jam, and I'm not about to try to relate myself to Michael Jordan, so I came up with a different character from that movie that's much better representation of my athletic contribution to the team with Bill Murray here. So uh, if you remember the movie, he didn't do anything for the team. That, that was about me. I, I have one stat to my name. I got a single block and that was it. And then the one shot that I tried to take in a game got blocked. So that was, you know, that was kind of a wash. Um, and that's about it. So I would argue, being the worst player on the team, being the worst team in the conference, I was probably the worst D1 player in the country back in 2001. But I will own that. And I'm okay with it. All right. You're probably asking yourself, why did he just go down this path with the basketball story? And I'll get to that in a, a quick moment here. But uh, we are in the middle of a series on Revelation. And what we're doing is we're taking the first few chapters where there is a letter, a message that Jesus has for the seven churches in Asia Minor. And he is, and we're, we're looking at this from the perspective of the fact that these were real churches in a real place at a real time, and they have stuff going on, and Jesus is addressing situations with an actual people group. It's also a message for us today. 
But in order to understand what Jesus would say to us as a church body, we have to understand how they took the message then. What is it that was going on in the city of Sardis that we're going to look at today that we can then pull out and say what is happening that Jesus would say to Abundant Life Church or his church today. So we're going to go to Revelation chapter 3, verse 1. And we're going to start there. Write this letter to the angel of the church in Sardis. This is the message from the one who has the sevenfold spirit of God and the seven stars. Not going to take a lot of time to unpack that. Jesus introduces himself differently in each of these seven letters. In this one, he is essentially saying, I am sufficient. I am enough for the church of Sardis. He introduced himself like this in chapter 1. It's a nod back to something Zechariah said in the Old Testament, but we don't have time to go into it. Bottom line is he's saying, I am sufficient for all of your needs. I know the things you do and that you have a reputation for being alive. All right, so for a quick moment, I'm on the elders team here, and if we were to get a letter from Jesus at any point, we would have sat down as an eldership and we'd say, hey, Jesus had something to say to us. We need to, to read this. And so we would have gotten together in the room and we'd be reading it. And I'd say about right there, you probably saw it on the screen. You already know what's coming. But, you know, we would have gotten right there. We'd be patting ourselves on the back saying, oh, Jesus must see what we're doing here. He's excited. He's, he sees our reputation for being alive. He probably knows we've got like some great women's ministry event that Carrie Underwood's coming to. We've got some great stuff coming up. We are the church to be at, and we're feeling real good about ourselves. But then it goes, but you are dead. Wait, did he just equate us to the University of Portland 2001 men's basketball team? Did, <laughs> that was my whole tie-in there, so there you go. That's why I brought up the story. Um, <laughs> there's a reputation for being alive until you get all of the details going on, and then you have this realization that, oh, there's more to this story, and it's the life that is portrayed maybe in an earlier version of the tale or with certain details does not necessarily hold true if you get the full facts. And so let's look at the city of Sardis and then at the church of Sardis and see what Jesus is addressing here. First off, the city of Sardis was one of the most famous cities in the area. They were also one of the oldest. By the time this letter is written, they actually had been in existence for at least 1,300 years. Uh, they were considered the first metropolis of Asia. And so it's this thriving big city. They're built on the spur of Mount Tumulus. Now, Mount Tumulus, I have a picture of. It rises 7,000 feet up into the air, and then there's this flat bit of ground that sticks out off the mountain that they call the spur. And from the spur where the city is, it then drops off another 1,500 feet to the valley below. And you can see with the sides of this mountain, it's made of this compacted mud that just breaks away when you try to um, do anything to it. And so with the mountain being there, it's a natural defense for the city. They actually built a wall on top of it as well. So if anyone were to come up this mountain, they would then face a wall before getting into the city. So it's got well, it's well protected. They were also an extremely wealthy city. There are two rivers that would run right through Sardis. And in one of these rivers, it was filled with gold. So much gold that they actually, it shows up in ancient mythology stories. So if you've heard the story of King Midas, that is 
takes place here. So, so the ancients had to describe where did all the gold come from in this river. King Midas, the story goes like this. He has the ability, anything that he touches turns to gold, hence the Midas touch. So the Midas touch turns anything to gold. It seems like a blessing at first, but he learns quickly that it is actually a curse because if he tries to eat something and he touched it, it turns to gold. So he has to have people feed him. And so he's like, this is not a blessing. It is a curse. I personally would take that curse on for a little while and give it a try, but that's beside the point. He decides he needs to get this rinsed off. And so he's given permission to go to the river Pactolus and rinse off this curse. As he's in the water, the water's flowing and turning to gold. And so that's how the ancients described why there was so much gold in this river. But the point of the story is that there was all this gold. They were actually the first city in the world to mint gold coins, and they were just living this life of wealth. Now, because of the wealth they lived uh, this really luxurious life. We've got King Croesus. He's known as the richest man in the world. He's the leader of the city at that time. He gets really complacent, though, as a leader because he's used to just things going his way, and he doesn't really have to think too much about the defenses of the city, the income, you name it. And so he just gets a bit, a bit lackadaisical. He ends up attacking the Persians. The Persians are rising up nearby and he wants to be known as the most powerful. So he goes and attacks them. He ends up losing the battle. And so he and his armies retreat back to the city where they're safe behind their walls atop the mountain. The Persians chase them, but 14 days into the siege, the Persians have made absolutely no ground trying to take the city of Sardis. And so it's uh, 14 days in, we're around the year 549 BC right now, by the way. And what ends up happening is you've got this group of soldiers up at the top of the wall, and they're also kind of living this complacency life, modeling their leader. One of them drops his helmet, and it rolls down the, the side of the mountain all the way down. And he watches it. And I can just picture him and his buddies, his buddies there giving him a really hard time, like, oh, you better not let the captain see you dropped a helmet. Like, you better retrieve that. They're giving him a hard time, laughing about it, enjoying the safety and security that this provides. So... He thinks, I better retrieve my helmet. He goes out a side door that's a hidden door on the wall and knows of this secret path that lets him traverse down the side of the mountain, goes, gets his helmet, and walks back up, comes back in the hidden door. He thought no one was watching. No, a Persian soldier saw him. And so that very night, the Persians use this secret path, follow it up the wall, open the hidden door, Lo and behold, there's not even a guard standing by on the other side of this door. So the Persians come in, and just like a thief, they end up taking the city. So that's the, the context here as we keep going. Uh, actually, before I keep going, this same story happens again 300 years later. Shockingly enough, something very similar, and another invading army takes the city through this hidden path and up this secret door. And so the, the city fall, falls twice without a fight. Eventually, Rome ends up with the city. So, all right, back to the letter. I know all the things you do and that you have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Wake up, strengthen what little remains, for even what is left is almost dead. Verse 2 literally starts with Jesus exclaiming to the church, wake up. He's yelling at them. You need to wake up. 
He's also said that you've got a reputation for being alive. He's not addressing the city. So we talked about the city and the background there. What's happening with the church? Well, the church also has a reputation for being alive. That's what Jesus said. So if we dig into that a little bit, we can assume that this is a church that's active. They've got lots of programs going on. I don't know. Maybe they've got the best VBS program anywhere in Asia Minor. People are are sending their kids in. Point is, they're an active church. But that doesn't mean they're alive. 1 Samuel 16, 7 says, people look at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. So my question is, where is our heart? Where is your heart? What is it that you worship? That's what God's looking at. Outward appearance means nothing. What is it that we are putting first in our life? Who are we worshiping? If we look at the people and we talk about what the uh, the people of Sardis were, were doing as far as worship, they historically worshiped this goddess named Cybel. So this goddess was depicted with a turreted crown and she would sit on this throne and there would be two lions on either side of her in the depictions of this goddess Cybel. While this city is changing control back and forth, over the course of time, they actually merge their worship of Cybele with their worship of Artemis and Zeus as other cultures come in, and they're just merging all of these gods and goddesses together into what they are worshiping. When they started uncovering the ruins of Sardis, they found uh, one of the seven largest temples ever built to the goddess Artemis at this in in the city of Sardis, um, and it was it was so large it actually never got completed, but it was still one of the seven largest they've ever found. When we talk about the Jews that were in this area, they were actually it was one of the original Jewish settlements, and one of the kings at the time helped establish at least two thousand Jewish families and helped them get into prominent positions. They were goldsmiths, they were running shops, they were um, doing really well in the city of Sardis. And you can imagine they started to mix in culture because that's what the city did. They started taking pieces of this culture and that culture and assimilating them into their life, and so. As they started uncovering the ruins of this, um, this temple, they also found the, the world's largest synagogue that they, that they found to date here in the city of Sardis. And in the synagogue is a list of the Jews that were, in, that were members, but the names weren't even written in Hebrew. They were written in Greek. Now, if that doesn't stand out to you, the Jews would have wanted to use their native tongue. They would have used, they would have, should have been in Hebrew, but instead of being in Greek tells us This is the only synagogue they found it this way. It tells us that they started being okay with what is the culture in this area I want to fit in. So they used their Greek names, even in their place of worship. They also found this table. And I have a picture of this for you. If we had an aerial shot from above the table, the table actually is engraved with an eagle, which is the sign of Rome. And what do you notice on the outside of the table in this, the two lions? So you've got pairs of lions flanking the table in the Jewish synagogue, which again is the symbol of Cybel. So you have this group of Jews who have actually started to pull from the culture around them, even in their holiest place where they would go and read the Torah and, you know, spend time together. They're pulling that in. This 
area was actually a focal point of the city. So there was actually a courtyard dedicated to the emperor and there was um, just a lot of things going on and it became this cultural focus of the city. So when the Christian church was established there, it was definitely established while Paul was in Ephesus. And he, so we've got this early group of believers after Christ uh, is crucified and rises again. And they end up meeting in this side room of the temple to Artemis. And so if you, there's a picture that we've got of the ruins of the area here. And you can see we've got the temple of Artemis there. And in this little corner down here is the evidence of where the early believers, the fourth century church, would have met. So even as Paul has planted a church to represent Jesus in this area, they're meeting in the t- a temple to another god. And it's this group of people who are so used to pulling from the culture around them that they're not necessarily holding true to the message of Jesus. As they've uncovered more and more of this city, they actually found shops in the marketplace where the decorations in there would have a Jewish menorah, a Christian cross, and in most of them, They actually had both along with a whole list of other pagan symbols from other religions as the decor in the shop. So so these shops were actually the very first place we see the coexist bumper sticker is back in Sardis. But it's this idea that, hey, we would like to fit in with everyone. We want to be a part of just this culture. You're all welcome here. Bill Humble says it this way. It was such a model of inoffensive Christianity that it was impossible to distinguish it from its worldly pagan neighbors. I saw this quote and it really hit me. I was looking at it thinking, wow, have we lost any of our distinctives? Anything that would separate us and say, no, the message of Christ says this, the message of the Bible is this. I mean, have we allowed culture to redefine anything in our lives that Jesus looks at? And if he were here today, he'd be writing us a letter and saying, Abundant Life Church, you appear alive, but you're dead. As we go to the letter, it says, I know all things you do and that you have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Wake up, strengthen what little remains, for even what is left is almost dead. The word used for wake up there is a Greek word, Gregorio, and it means, it could be actually translated to be alert or to be watchful. Jesus uses this word in Matthew 24 when he's concluding his teaching on his return. It says, understand this, if a homeowner knew exactly when a burglar was coming, He would keep watch. There's the word right there. He would keep watch and not permit his house to be broken into. Paul uses it as well. He uses it and says, so let us not be like the others who are asleep, but let us be alert and self-controlled. Now, Paul joins it to self-control, which is interesting. What is self-control? Well, it's saying no to the things that our flesh is calling us to do and saying, what is it that God has me to do? What is right and wrong? And saying yes to the things of God. Uh, In the Old Testament, there's this story of Lot, if you go into Genesis. And in Genesis, we we see Lot, he lives near Sodom and Gomorrah. So he lives near Sodom. In fact, when we first see him introduced, 
It says after, cho or after choosing to keep his flocks in the river uh, or in the rich valley along the Jordan River, we're told that Lot pitched his tents near Sodom. Another chapter later, it goes from pitching his tents near Sodom. It says sometime later we're told he's living in Sodom. That's in chapter 14. And then finally in chapter 19, we actually see that he's moved from living near Sodom to in Sodom. He's actually sitting at the gates of the city as a city elder. So he's actually now joined the city and he's a part of the leadership. And there's this slow trickle into Lot's life where we see him go from this looks appealing to maybe I want to be a part of it to, you know what, I'm going to go ahead and lead this. And it's a slow fall for Lot. And if you know the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, it does not end well for Lot and his family. But maybe where Lot went, made his mistake was early on when it looked a little bit too appealing and he made the choice to be really close to it. I find that your actions do not meet the requirements of my God. See, Jesus is actually telling them, you need to take immediate steps here. This is not something that you can wait on. It's something that you actually need to start rebuilding now. Paul warns Timothy of those who would have a form of godliness but deny its power. You see, Sardis had a form of godliness. They had a form of Christianity. But were they living in the power that Jesus had for them? I would argue that they were not. And that's what Jesus is addressing right here. He's saying, no, you have this form of Christianity, but you're denying that I am the creator of the universe, that I am the, the one way to the Father. Last week, Larry Aspland got a chance to unpack one of the other letters. And if you weren't here, I highly recommend that you go back and listen to it because he did an incredible job. But what he, uh, so his, his role, has, he's been a professor of apocalyptic literature and he's someone who really understands all this. He wrote a book on it. And what he said in his book about the church in Sardis is that it's interesting to remember that the, the church met in the temple complex of Artemis, a temple that was never completed. As with the city, the church was largely unfulfilled promise, unrealized potential, appearance without reality. At some point, they had taken their eyes off the vision and without knowing it, had become blind. Back to what Jesus is saying. Go back to what you heard and believed at first. Hold to it firmly. Repent and turn to me again. If you don't wake up, I will come to you suddenly as unexpected as a thief. The ESV words it this way, remember then what you have received and heard. You say there's not a direct exhortation of what they're supposed to be doing at this point other than go back to what you already know. You need to obey what you already have been told. They needed to start remembering their first love with Jesus. What drew you in to begin with? What compelled you to come to me? My wife and I have the privilege of serving uh, as marriage mentors here. And just a quick side note for this ministry. This ministry has been an incredible opportunity to stand alongside couples who are maybe going through a harder patch in their marital journey right now because it's not easy all the time, right? But one of the things that we've had the privilege of doing is standing along some couples who are, are 
just trying to do exactly this. They're trying to remember that first love. And oftentimes as we dig in with them, it's that process of trying to let God come in and speak to them, but it's also this process of remind me what it was like to begin with. And so that's what Jesus is saying to his church right now. He's like, come to me. Remember what our first love looks like. Repent and turn to me again. If you don't wake up, I will come to you suddenly as unexpected as a thief. Now, do you hear the heart of the Father here? This is not a threat. This is not like, oh, hey, if you don't do this quickly, I'm coming like a thief and I'm gonna do, I'm gonna take all your stuff. I'm gonna, that's not what he's doing here. He's actually saying, remember the fact that your city has already fallen twice simply due to complacency? You were not being alert. You were not being watchful. You weren't ready. And all of a sudden, two invading armies have taken your city in the past simply because no one was there and paying attention. And I'm imploring you to remember me as the father, remember me as the son. You've got to put me first. And so Jesus is calling out to his church right now, and he's saying, the time is coming where you and I are going to be standing face to face. The time is coming sooner than you think. And if you push it off and push it off, you're going to get to a point where all of a sudden you and I stand face to face. And the Bible says that every knee will bow and every heart will confess that he is the Lord. And if in that moment you have not had the opportunity to do that here, and now while Jesus is imploring you to do that, he's going to have to stand there and say, I never knew you. But the alternative, and as we look into this letter more, there's another option, and that is that he's going to take you up, give you a hug, and say, well done, my faithful servant. And so there are these two responses that we are called to as believers, that we have got to understand that now is the time to get our life and our mind set with Jesus to ensure that at that time we are in his book of life, which jumps ahead here. So if we keep going... Yet there are some in the church in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes with evil. They will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. For they are worthy. You know, in the rest of the book of Revelation, only God and Jesus are called worthy. Right here, it's the saints that are called worthy. It's you and I. It's those who have overcome that are called worthy. There are those who have not soiled their clothes with evil. See, there are those whose deeds, whose actions line up with what they say they believe. There are those within this church in Sardis who are not bowing down to the, the lions flanking the, the, the altar, essentially who are not paying attention to the fact that it's Rome's symbol on the top of the altar. No, their heart is in line with Jesus because, again, God looks at the heart. So regardless of the circumstances, it comes down to you and your personal relationship with God. And are you in a spot where you are bowing down to him, the Father? Or are you bowing down because you've merged this piece of culture and that piece of culture into what we've then created as our current right and wrong? You see, there are some in this culture who are taking the word of God and they're saying, I'm not going to let culture define what's right, define what's wrong, or tell me what to believe. I'm going to look to this word right here 
where it says, in the beginning, God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Male and female, he created them. And I'm going to look to what did God do from the beginning? What was his plan? Because I don't want culture to tell me. We've been through this cycle. Sardis is a perfect example of a city that allowed culture to tell them what truth was. And that's not what I want. I know it's not what this church wants. Larry spoke about it last week. David, Aaron, Gareth, they've all spoken about it in the past weeks. The culture at this time was that was all centered around these temples in each of these cities. And these temples were filled with all kinds of immorality, all kinds of sexual immorality. And what's crazy is not only was it permissible, but it actually was essentially mandated. Like if you were not the one that was participating in the immorality that was going on, you were the weird one at this time. You're the one that the, the social media was lighting up as being the problem. The TikTok videos were all about how can you believe this guy's not participating in the temple activities? Leave it at that. <laughs> and it comes down to, did you stand firm on the word of God, understanding what is right and wrong and understanding what truth is? Jude one twenty three says, rescue others by snatching them from the flames of judgment. Show mercy to still others, but do so with great caution, hating the sins that contaminate their lives. You see, let's not miss a part of this message. We are to be a seeker-friendly church in the sense that anyone out there should be able to walk in these doors and experience the love of Jesus. They should witness love from you when you interact with anyone, regardless of what their belief system is founded upon. They should experience love from you. But don't miss also that we must hate the sins that contaminate their lives, even while we love them. All who are victorious will be clothed in white. I will never erase their names from the book of life, but I will announce before my father and his angels that they are mine. We'll be clothed in white. You see, to be clothed in something means you were wearing something else beforehand and then something was placed on you. You were clothed in something else. So whether or not your garments have been stained by sin or not is irrelevant. You are wearing the white robes that Christ places upon you. You're wearing his righteousness. I've sinned. We've all sinned. Pastor, Pastor Gareth has sinned. But it is the robes of Jesus that are placed upon us covering anything that we have done. I will never erase their names from the book of life. You see, all Greek cities actually had a book that registered who was a part of that community. And no one's name was erased from the book unless they died or they committed, they committed a crime. And Jesus has this book of life. We've got the book of the Lamb. And in it, are all the names of those who have put their faith in Jesus. But I will announce before my Father and his angels that they are mine. Jesus is saying he will announce 
to his father that they are mine. They're mine. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me, but these are mine. Their name's in my book. They are mine. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. You see, this message is for every single one of us. It's not just for the church in Sardis. And if you are not sure if your name is in the Lamb's book of life, let's take care of that today. It's just a response. It's just laying down your heart. It's saying, Jesus, I am yours. And so if that's you, and you're looking for an opportunity to, to put him first in your life, I would just ask that you raise your hand, just simply so I can pray with you. And then afterwards, there's going to be prayer partners up here that you can come up and pray with. Because we as a church body would love to stand alongside you. So if anyone is here, I just wanted to give that moment. Thank you. Yeah. Father God, we thank you for this time today. We pray that you would help us to live the way that you have asked us to live and that, God, you would help us to know what right and wrong is based on your word. Help our actions line up with what our beliefs are, Lord God. Don't let culture define for us what is right and wrong. In Jesus' name, amen.